Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Good morning. Today is the day. It's December the 5th. It is the fifth day of Advent 2019, which means we are reading Luke chapter 5 today here at My Faith Radio. You can join us by going to My Faith Radio. Well, you can join us by opening the Bible and reading with us a chapter a day during the season of Advent. If you want to let us know that you have joined us, which is just, you know, frankly kind of fun to know that we're in community together doing this with one another, uh, then you can go to MyFaithRadio.com, and over on the right-hand side of the page, you'll see a place where you can just let us know that you're with us in this Advent experience of reading a chapter, the corresponding chapter of the Gospel of Luke, each day of the month of December, each day of Advent. So again, December the 5th, therefore the fifth day of Advent, therefore we're reading Luke chapter 5. You see there's no hard math here. Okay, so I'm going to lead off with the first several verses of Luke chapter 5. Excuse me. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him listening to the word of God. Now, let's just pause there for a moment. Um, Jesus was clearly standing by the lake speaking the Word of God, because that's what they were listening to. Pause there for just a moment and consider who Jesus really is. I mean, according to John, Jesus is, in fact, the Logos, the Word of God, made, fe- made flesh, dwelling among us, full of grace and truth. And so when Jesus speaks, that is the Word of God. I like the way Luke um, winds that information into the very first verse of the fifth chapter of his gospel without going, you know, frankly, to all the trouble that John goes to to describe to us what that all means. So the people were standing there by the lake with Jesus, listening to him speak. And Luke characterizes it as listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who uh, were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put it out a little from the shore. And then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Uh, Now, that creates a very natural amplifier using the water to amplify one's voice. Uh, He also takes the posture of of a teacher of the day. But, you know, let's also admit that sitting down in a boat is just safer than standing up in one. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, remember the owner of the boat, who had been washing or mending his nets, uh, but who had in great obedience to this particular teacher of the day, uh, had gotten into the boat and put it... uh, a little away from the shore so that Jesus could teach. So after he had finished speaking, Jesus said to Simon, put out into deep water and let the nets down for a catch of fish. And Simon answered, Master, we worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both boats so that they began to sink. And when Simon, Peter, Well, you and I know that it's Peter, uh, which, by the way, see, Luke just sticks that right in here. When Simon, Peter, saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. 
for he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken in. So were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners, the guys in the other boat. So Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you're going to fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore and they left everything and followed him. So here we have Peter, James, and John, who will figure um, very prominently in the ongoing conversation, not only throughout the Gospel of Luke, but throughout the life and ministry of Jesus. It is these three men who journey together with Jesus to the top of the mountain of transfiguration. They are the ones who actually get to witness the fullness of his radiance and glory. Uh, These three are kind of the inner circle. They comprise the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, uh, throughout uh, the Gospel throughout Jesus's life and ministry. And so it's, uh, it, it is here that Luke introduces these three to us uh, as the first followers. They left everything and followed him, uh, followers of Jesus. All right, the ministry of Jesus um, proceeds from here. And the next story is the cleansing and the touching of the leper. That's a critical story in terms of how people understand who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Um, and then We get uh, the news spreading about who Jesus is, and then the reality that Jesus, even in the midst of the crowds coming to him, Jesus, verse 16 says, often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Just a really powerful reminder that even as the uh, issues of the day, the needs of the day are pressing in upon us, the most critical thing that we can do is get some time alone with the Lord our God, some, some time to consider the Word of God, to consider the character of God and the person of Christ. Uh, and to consider our great need, our great desperate need for him. All right, when we come back, I'm going to be talking with Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute about the headlines of the day. We'll be right back. This is my right. Joining me now, Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute. You can um, follow everything that he is. Well, you can follow some of what he is doing at Acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. But you can always uh, follow him on Twitter where you would be able to see his new profile picture, should you choose to do that. Uh, He is the rights writer. Welcome, sir. Always good to be with you, Carmen. Good morning. So we've never met in real life. Are you sure that's a picture of you? Uh, that That is, in fact, me. I, I realize that it could be used to scare rats away, but uh, someone asked, what is that thing on your face? And I said, it's worse than that. That is my face. So. <laughs> well, we've never met in real life. And so, you know, it's fun. Uh, it's fun to at least know you um, by this new profile picture. So thank you for sharing it. Kind of fun to update things. Okay. Well, so thank you. That's, um, I, that's either me or Pierre Delecto. Yes. Yeah, well, see, that's what I was. Yeah. You know, that's why I asked. Right. It has a strange resemblance. Okay, we are going to talk today um, uh, about uh, Putin. Um, And let's remind ourselves here that Russia does not have the same kinds of protections of any kind of freedoms that we have here in the United States. They don't have the kind of constitution we have. They don't have uh, freedom of speech. And clearly, based on this, they don't have freedom of the press. So uh, Vladimir Putin, Russia's president... And Russia's government now um, has this law uh, now on the books 
where they have classified journalists, bloggers, and even people on social media as foreign agents. Talk with us about why this matters. Well, you're right. Russia has never had the kind of First Amendment protections that we had or the kind of history with uh, with Western liberty that we have in terms of life, liberty, and property. Uh, you know, serfdom was still uh, the majority existence uh, up until basically the time of our Civil War. And uh, they went from czarist Russia to uh, to communist Russia to uh, now Putin's Russia. There was a brief window in the 1990s uh, under Yeltsin where it looked as though we might have an opportunity to sway uh, the, the course of history more toward a Western, pro-Western uh, and pro-liberty perspective. And instead, uh, Yeltsin just sold out to a kleptocracy and they owned everything. So uh, as, as a result, uh, you got the rise of Vladimir Putin and security. But uh, the price of that is that it cracks down on freedom of speech. Vladimir Putin has really two interlacing laws. Uh, the most recent one is one that, as you mentioned, would allow Putin to declare uh, almost anyone who uh, takes money, certainly from a foreign source or that works for a foreign source, like uh, the Voice of America or BBC, France 24, Deutsche Welle from Germany. Uh, all of these would be declared foreign journalists. But also, if you took money from a foreign uh, organization or in some cases, even if you have certain ties to foreign organizations, you'd be labeled as a foreign agent. But what he's responding to is an Obama-era uh, regulation that uh, forced uh, RTTV in the United States to be declared as a Russian propaganda outlet, which it certainly is. Uh, and, and as a result of that, he's, he's saying that if you're going to do that to Russian television in America, here's what I'm going to do to the entire West, uh, which after you've been declared as a, a foreign agent, then uh, the websites can be blocked. Stories can be taken off of social media. Uh, there can even be uh, fines imposed in, in one case. I think it was uh, uh, the New Times uh, with something like $300,000 was enough to bankrupt the entire publication uh, if it had been uh, if it hadn't been for uh, foreign donations, actually, that came in and uh, replenished its coffers. So you have that law. By the way, there's another one as well, which is uh, they have a, an, an incredibly strict fake news law. Uh, this is something that has been talked about by Emmanuel Macron in France. Uh, certain presidential candidates, as well as AOC, are exercised that Facebook doesn't have a policy banning so-called fake news from its outlet. But uh, Russia has one that it instituted over the course of the last year. And guess who gets to determine what's fake news? Vladimir Putin. So this should, this should warn us, anytime we've got a fake news uh, determination being made by the government, that government may not reflect Christian principles. Yeah, and here, you know, I, I just – the reason that you and I want to talk about this today is because I do think we take freedom for granted. We take freedom in general for granted. We take specific freedoms like the freedom of speech or the freedom of the press for granted. And then we use terms um, to denigrate those in the media um, in ways that are not appropriate. Um, and, and so I just – I want people to be – considering the terms that we are using here in in America, um, like fake news, and when we denigrate members of the journalistic community because we disagree with them um, on political issues. Uh, but when we do that, we are undermining, at some level, our own freedom to do what we're doing right now, which is to speak, speak freely over the air. Uh Anytime the government gets involved in trying to determine 
what's right and what's wrong or who's who's speaking and being influenced by a foreign government, uh, you're going to have uh, a, a loss of freedom come about as a result, and that means a loss of freedom of speech, the inability for us to dis- to discourse freely, openly, without any kind of boundaries on our uh, common ex- uh, our common discussion of what Christ wills for us to do in in this life. And yeah, so I think that we have to treat everyone with respect. We can have a robust dialogue and disagree about everything, including you know the, the way that uh, certain issues are presented in the media. Uh, However, I think we have to do that within the boundaries of courtesy, within the boundaries of civility, always within the boundaries of the truth, and uh, to allow others to have their version of the truth as well, uh, instead of having someone come in and play referee, because it may silence them for a few years while our side is in power, but more likely uh, than not, the side that does not reflect Christian values will be in power longer, and they will silence us much more deeply. Ben Johnson, the rights writer, and I are going to continue our conversation in just a moment. We've got to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about um, some proposed policies that candidates for the presidency of the United States are putting forward and how those policies have proven in the past to impoverish the poor. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation now uh, with Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute. You can find him at actonacton.org. Um, ben, obviously, you guys have several things posted at Acton um, related to the proposals that um, that Democrats are putting forward, which we would describe as at least democratic socialist policies, if if not outright socialist policies. So let's talk about um, how those kinds of policies in other places over time have made poor people poorer. Yes, and of course the flip side of that is they actually have made the rich richer as well. Uh, for, for example, there was a study that came out from the European Central Bank. They looked at social welfare policies in 13 different countries across Europe. What they found was the more that a country spent on social welfare spending, uh, programs like universal child care, Uh, national health care, things of that sort, the less wealth the poor had. In fact, the less wealth everybody had, but it affected the poor more than it did the rich. If you're already rich, you already have money, so uh, you don't have to go and acquire it. But if if you're on the outside, you're trying to make your way up. These these policies actually kept them from accruing wealth because instead of uh, getting a job and and, uh, working in order to provide for themselves, they found that uh, the government made a, a policy that would substitute for their their uh, need to, to work for themselves. So the unintended consequence, uh, the, the desire is to provide for people who don't have uh, what they need, but the unintended consequence was it actually kept them from ever escaping poverty. And you find this all across, uh, all across Europe, but several of the policies are uh, somewhat similar to some of the things that uh, Democratic presidential candidates and, and occasionally you'll hear Republicans echo this kind of thinking as well. Uh, for example, there was a, a program in the U.K. that uh, helps people who uh, want to buy a home. Housing is a big problem in the U.K. because whole, hosts, uh, whole uh, sections of the country are dedicated to what they call green belts, so you can't build on them. They're environmentally protected areas. So uh, they have a program. 
you only have to put a 5% down uh, deposit down on a, a home, and the government will match that with 20% that you borrow from them, interest-free for five years, and then you just finance the remaining 75%. What they found was this raised the price of homes, and for the most part, uh, since it, rose, it raised the price of homes, the very poor couldn't even afford the 5%, so it locked them out of ever owning a home, and then... The vast majority, about two-thirds of the people who uh, who took part in it, could have afforded the home without the help. So this ended up uh, benefiting the upper middle class. It ended up uh, harming the poor. And then the people who really cashed in were the people building homes. They had a, a billion dollars in, in revenue uh, from the government as a result of this. About uh, 40% of all the homes that were newly built were built because of this program. And uh, the lion's share of that money went to the top nine contract, uh, con- constructing uh, contractors in the United Kingdom. So the very wealthy make out very well. The moderately wealthy make out fairly well. And the poor do very poorly under democratic socialism. So let's talk about some of um, the proposals by just one particular uh, candidate for the presidency, Elizabeth Warren, um, because she has a number of proposals that we might um, consider to be efforts at um, redistributing wealth, um, efforts at elevating the poor. I think that's what she has in mind. Um, What are some of her proposals uh, and sort of what's your take on them? Well, sure. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, you know, her answer to everything is, I have a plan for that. And uh, hats off to her that she has staked out a, a very a robust policy issue uh, on virtually everything. The biggest, um, the biggest uh, eyebrow raiser for me is that she wants to institute a wealth tax. Now, wealth tax is an income. Yeah, income tax is something we already pay. Wealth is what you've kept after they've taken your income away. Uh, and Uh, So a wealth tax would be that someone, an assessor, would come to your home, uh, decide how much your home is worth, your stock holdings are worth, your paintings are worth, and then you would be taxed a certain percentage of that. Well, the only way that you can pay for a wealth tax is if you start selling off these assets. Now, if you have a selling orgy on uh, Wall Street, suddenly, guess what that does to the price of the stock? It destroys the the wealth that was created and is being taxed. So – uh, this, this is, wealth taxes have been tried across Europe. The number of countries that have had them have uh, shrunk from, I, I think at one point there were about 13 different countries. Now it's down to six or nine, depending on how you uh, look at them. Many of them have exemptions that are so high. What they found was that wealth taxes encourage rich people to move to countries that don't have wealth taxes. So uh, this, this has been a big problem in France. Emmanuel Macron, to his credit, is actually trying to, uh, to arrest that. It would be a huge mistake to import that kind of a, uh, a policy here uh, and, and simply punish the, the wealthy with the intention of helping the poor. But in fact, all you're doing is taking away the wealth uh, of, the, of uh, the very wealthy that could help the poor in other ways through investment, through charity, or through uh, uh, reasonable government programs that we have for those who are unable to work. Um, okay, one. Um, give us one positive. Uh, tell us one positive story as our takeaway in the last minute. Positive story. Uh, well, I, we talked about uh, one outstanding story a couple of weeks ago about a woman who uh, hired people from a homeless shelter, and uh, she she hired uh, several people. All of them ended up escaping homelessness forever as a result of not only the job that she gave them, but she would hook them up with resources, with psychotherapy, with uh, literacy and job skills. 
and then move them on to the next level. And that is really uh, the genius of the American system. That, uh, you can begin at, at uh, the very lowest with absolutely no help, no resources. If someone is willing to help you and invest in your life and breathe life into you, you can keep going. That's what each one of us as Christians is, is supposed to do, to breathe life into others spiritually by speaking the Word of God and materially by investing in their lives. I love it. Thank you for rising to the challenge of the uh, we have one minute for a good news story. I love it. Thank you so much. Ben Johnson, as always, it's a joy to talk with you. We look forward to the next time. As always, God bless. God bless. You guys can find him at acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. We'll be right back. So my next guest uh, always just wanted to teach the Bible. That, that was it. Uh, what God provided for him uh, is a career that debuted with an album called First Light in 1981. He then recorded more than 37 albums and has authored more than 27 books. He's hosted a radio program. He has penned such favorites as El Shaddai and Emmanuel. In fact, he's written more than 19 number one hits. And all along, his real passion has remained the same, to teach the Bible. I'm talking about Michael Card, and he is going to be with us here next to talk about his passion, which is to teach the Bible, and specifically the amazement we find in the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke is our Advent study this month here at MyFaith Radio. You can join us by logging on to MyFaithRadio.com and clicking on the little Join Us in our Advent study uh, spot on the website. Michael Card up next to tell us why the Gospel of Luke is just so amazing. Are you living an either-or kind of life or both and? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. After decades of working with troubled teens and their families, I'm convinced that life is rarely an either-or thing. It's rarely easy or difficult, fun or challenging. It's always both at the same time. The trick is to keep the good and bad in perspective. Remember that challenging issues are just a normal part of everyday life, and tough issues won't last forever. Be on the lookout for things to enjoy and reasons to laugh. When you learn to smile, even when you have reasons to wince, you're choosing to live a both-and kind of life. And that's a far better choice. Parenting Teens isn't for the faint of heart. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Check out his latest resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. I'm just delighted to have Michael Card with us here this morning on Mornings with Carmen. Uh, Michael, welcome. Good morning. So I'm going to begin with something deeply personal. I, I really, I, I can't believe that you are going to be at Memorial Park Church for the next couple of days with one of my dearest friends in ministry, Dean Weaver. Oh, I, yeah. I just, I, I mean, I I obviously had occasion to visit your website, um, and folks can find that at michaelcard.com. Um, but I had occasion, obviously, to visit your website and see what uh-huh. is happening. And I see that for the next couple of days, you're you're going to be up there in Pennsylvania. And I just, my heart just leapt. I love Edge Nations. I love that you're doing a benefit concert for them. It's just, yes. it thrills my heart. Yeah, that, that's a great ministry. 
Yeah, I look forward to coming up there. That's I'm leaving tomorrow. That is, yeah, that's tomorrow. Yeah, right? it's it's upon you, man. It's it's right upon yeah. you. It's coming. So you're <laughs> gonna well, let's let's start there because you're gonna talk with them about Hesed. You are gonna talk with them about God's inexpressible loving kindness. So you've right. that's actually your latest project and your latest book. So let's start there, and then okay. we are gonna move into a conversation about the Gospel of Luke because that's our study here at My Faith Radio this month during Advent, um, okay. and so we thought it would be fun to reach back um, and and talk with you about that as well. But talk with us. Let's start with Hesed. What, what is okay. this mysterious loving kindness of God? Well, uh, the, the Hebrew word Hesed is it's one of these wonderful, uh, untranslatable uh, Hebrew words. It's, it's uh, translated 169 different ways in uh, six or seven different English translations. And that that in, in and of itself, uh, you know, to me, you know, I'm fascinated with this word. Um, but the, the, the favorite translation for most people is one of the oldest translations and that's loving kindness. And that's a word that was made up, uh, by a guy named Miles Coverdale in 1535 in an attempt to translate this untranslatable word. So it's, it's the word that God uses to reveal himself to Moses in, uh, in Exodus, um, and I, I say that the the big surprise of the New Testament is that when the Messiah comes, uh, he's a slave, he's a servant, he washes people's feet. The big surprise of the Hebrew Bible is that God is kind. Hmm. Yeah. I think we forget that. I don't think, and I don't think anybody saw that coming. I mean, we know God is holy and just and, um, in you know, infinitely wise, and he creates the universe with a word and that sort of thing. Those are the things I would expect from God. But that he's kind? And Jesus will say in Luke um, that he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked, which I think is one of the most remarkable things Jesus ever said. Mm. All right, so let's uh, let's pivot and let's talk about um, this remarkable Jesus. I, you know, I I am I maybe am concerned that people are not nearly as amazed by Jesus today and the reality mm-hmm. of his coming um, yeah, me as too. obviously Luke portrays the first time around, right? I mean, we yes, me people too. are amazed. Mary is amazed, Joseph is right. amazed, the angels themselves seemed amazed. Uh right. the the shepherds are certainly amazed. Simeon is amazed, Anna is amazed. People are amazed the first yeah. time around. Um yeah, help us and, recapture and, some of that. Well, when when you, and when you read that in Luke, you got to ask yourself, okay, why why is that such a big deal for Luke? Cuz the other gospels don't use the the other gospels don't exhaust the language of amazement the way Luke does. And mm-hmm. I think what it means is um that the 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 eyewitnesses that Luke spoke to, and that's he tells us he's not an eyewitness, but he speaks to eyewitnesses, people that had actually seen and heard Jesus. All these years, thirty or more years later, they're still amazed. They still can't get over what he said and what he did, and this impact that he had on people. And and it's interesting what you said earlier that you're concerned that people today aren't <laughs> amazed. Well, one of the best things to do is read the Gospel of Luke. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you've spent time um, thinking about Luke as as yeah. a person. Yes. Part of what you introduce um, in in your book um, on the Gospel of Luke, uh, part of what you introduce people to is this idea practice of biblical imagination. So tell people mm-hmm. what that is, and then walk around um, with Luke. Okay. Well. Um... I think the whole biblical imagination uh, concept starts with 
the fall. We're we're fallen. We're fragmented. I mean, it, look look at the news. There's there's nothing as self-evident <laughs> as the truth that people aren't the way they should be, and this world isn't the way it should be. And part of that fall, part of that fragmentation, is seen in the way we approach the Bible. And some people approach the Bible with their heads, and they're very theological. Nothing wrong with that. God gave you a brain. Um, and then there's some people who approach the Bible with their hearts, and they're very devotional and, and very uh, emotional about things. And again, there's nothing wrong with that because God gave you your heart. But the Bible is seeking to recapture all of us, your head and your heart. And you see that in that the Bible is not just aiming at your brain. It's not theology. It's not just aiming at your heart. It's not just devotional, you know, uh, emotional kind of uh, content. The Bible is engaging your imagination. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's poetry. It's stories. It's apocalyptic. It, it's, it's meant to recapture uh, this bridge between your heart and your mind, which is your imagination. And I think that's, that's because God knows he, he gets all of us if he captures our imaginations. And Jesus' parables do the same thing. He aims his teaching at your imagination. And I, I think that was special to Luke, because Luke uh, has more parables uh, than any of the other Gospels. And one of the uniquenesses of Luke is he shows us parables working. Uh, the other Gospels don't do that. Uh, Matthew will, you know, string together three or four parables. But Luke, uh, not every time, but Luke uh, frequently will say, this is the group that was listening to the parable, and then Jesus will tell the parable. And then afterwards, Luke will show you the, the, the effect or the impact. The Pharisees understood that Jesus had told this parable against them, that sort of thing. And uh, I think it shows, obviously, the Holy Spirit's at work in, in Luke's writing of the gospel, but it also shows the fact that Luke is interested in this sort of thing. When he talks to the eyewitnesses, uh, you can imagine him saying, well, do you remember any parables? <laughs> <laughs> so um, Luke is, I mean, you've just noted there, uh, you know, he's a second generation Christian. Yes, right. Um, and so he does have this approach that is different than eyewitness accounts. He has this, um, he makes a thorough study of, of yes. all of the information available. And so he has this heady approach that seems to be part of what um, what he's doing. But he also, you can clearly tell, um, he is moved by the way Jesus impacted, um, changed the lives, transformed, particularly those who were on the margins of, of society. Um, yes. Ta talk about that relationship. There is a head and a heart thing going on in Luke. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, uh, one, of, one of the ideas I think that's kind of new is this idea that Luke almost certainly was a slave, uh, because he has a slave's name. Uh, he has a shortened form of the name Lucian, which is uh, one indicator that he might have been a slave. And he's a doctor. Paul tells us he's a doctor, uh, which is another indication he was probably a slave, because most professional people in the first century, teachers and doctors, were slaves. And I think being a slave, uh, he's interested in, in people that are marginal, uh, particularly women. Women are very marginalized in the first century, and, and uh, Luke uh, shows an amazing interest and sensitivity in, in the women uh, that Jesus reached out to and that supported his ministry and that sort of thing. And I, I, I really think it's—I uh, like to say that the Bible's accurate when it doesn't know it's being accurate. 
And um, the, the fact that uh, a companion of Paul writes a gospel, um, you know, you stop and you ask yourself, well, what would you expect? You know, um, what would you expect from a person who spent time with Paul? Well, one, one great example, I think, is in the Gospel of Luke, the Pharisees aren't bad guys. Jesus has meal fellowship three times with Pharisees in Luke, and meal one and meal three are very congenial meals. Uh, only in Luke do the Pharisees come to Jesus and warn Jesus that Herod wants to kill them. Uh, so there's this, there's this, um, um, you know, there's this different perspective on the Pharisees. Well, what would you expect from a, a companion of Paul? What, what was Paul? He was a Pharisee. <laughs> and Luke knows that the Pharisees aren't all bad guys. In fact, leadership in the early church was largely Pharisaic. So there's all kinds of beautiful pieces of the puzzle that come together uh, in the gospel. L Luke is interested, as Paul was, in the gospel going out uh, to the Gentile world. You know, Simeon holds Jesus and says, you know, he's a light to the Gentiles. Isn't it interesting that Paul's Paul's disciple, you know, uh, writes that fact down in his gospel? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm talking with Michael Card. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment. Um, we're talking about a range of things, but the book specifically is Luke, the Gospel of Amazement. Um, you can find you can find a whole lot more at michaelcard.com. Uh, and we're going to continue our conversation uh, here next. We're going to continue talking about biblical imagination, but I'm also going to invite Michael to talk about the importance of community and why it matters to him. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. What child is this who lay to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? Michael Card has been uh, speaking the Word of God into our hearts um, through music for many of us uh, for, for a fairly long period of time. Um, El Shaddai is, and Emmanuel are a part of the absolute soundtrack of my own Christian walk and experience. I bet you have uh, a Michael Card song that runs through your head or sparks your imagination. Uh, maybe he has helped you to think differently about Mary or differently about Joseph. Um, or the experiences of the disciples the first time around. And maybe that has changed the way that you have walked with the Lord and uh, entered into the study of God's Word. That is really Michael Card's passion, to get God's people into the Word of God, that the Word of God might get into God's people and, uh, and thereby uh, change the world. So again, Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit more with you uh, about biblical imagination, because it okay. occurs to me that people who write songs about the faith and about the things of faith are operating in this biblical imagination in ways that maybe some of the rest of us have not spent a lot of time thinking. And so um, it's not just an exercise um, to explore Scripture. It's an exercise then to express faith. And so talk, talk a little bit about that relationship. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I kind of I agree and I kind of disagree. Um, d definitely to 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 write music or to write lyrics or poetry or sermons or any any kind of or to do radio shows to come up with content for radio shows. Uh, that's something that engages your imagination. But I I, I also think that uh, God calls all of us. I mean, in whatever ministry you're in. You, he engages your imagination. If you're in a mercy ministry, uh, mm. that takes an, a tremendous amount of uh, imagination. When you're trying to connect with someone, uh, perhaps you know someone who's needy, 
um, who often, you know, like the res rescue mission work, people with, you know, huge problems and huge uh, walls that can be built up over time. It takes a lot of an a lot of imagination to connect. Uh, you know, Mercy Ministry, I think, demands a lot of uh, a lot of imagination. Um, so, but but yeah, I, I'm not disagreeing. Uh, songwriters have to use it too. But what imagination is is basically listening. You just learn to to engage and and listen to the word and listen to the to God's voice to the Holy Spirit. If we really believe that he uh, he lives in us and speaks and gives us direction, so it's it's mar largely a matter of listening. Hmm. So when we are seeking to listen to what God has said. And then when we are seeking to communicate that to others um, in acts of mercy, in our daily lives with our families, um, you know, in, in traffic with people who are not behaving um, <clears throat> right. very Christianly, right? There you go. Um, right. <laughs> uh, so I think that for a lot of us, um, and just, you know, <clears throat> take the compliment, you have done something for us as a, as a fellow kingdom ambassador. You have done something for us in in writing and recording music that helps us see into what we are hearing uh, from the Word of God. And so um, that's uh, maybe what I'm referring to. I, I just think of the way that in Joseph's song, you help us see things in Joseph's story that we might not have heard had we just been listening ourselves to the Word of God. And so it's an act of community yeah. that you— Well, I, I'll tell you how jo Joseph's song happened. I was— my brother, I was in the maternity ward when my brother's wife had their first child, and my brother, I saw my brother mm. hold his son for the first time. And my brother said, How could this be? He's just holding mm. this little baby. It's like, Where did this thing come from? And, uh, and, and I just imagined, Well, if, if he's having this experience, what, what would Joseph have felt? <laughs> holding this uh, miraculous baby for the first time. And so I, that's an example, I think, of listening, but listening to not just Scripture, but listening to your life mm -hmm. and things that happen, people that God brings you know, into your life. You, you learn all sorts of things uh, from listening. Well, and that takes us to a conversation about community. I, I know it's really important to you. Yes. Um, talk, talk about the importance of community for the Christian. Well, um, it, I think it's important. To, should be important to Christians because it was important to Jesus. Jesus creates three communities that we know of. Uh, these sort of circles of of intimacy. He has the three, Peter, James, and John. Then he has the twelve, and then he has the seventy. I mean, those are three communities that we know of uh, that he created. And and I think the way that works is you look at it as his life um, and ask yourself. How many people can I really be close to? How many people in my life can ask me anything? I can ask them anything. Um, they know every, you know, every dirty little secret, right, about me. Well, three, I think three is sort of pushing it. I have two people in my life that are like that. And, and for Jesus, that's Peter, James, and John. Very uh, intimate, uh, very close. You know, he, when he prays, he wants to have them with him that sort of thing. But then the next circle out, 12, how many people can you know to the extent that you know, you know, their family, you know, their kids' names, you know, you know, uh, uh, a certain amount about their personal lives? I think 12 is pushing it. 
And then the next circle out is how many people's names do you know? <laughs> and you know, you have some, some idea about who they are. I think 70 is, again, is sort of pushing it because well, obviously Jesus has really good people skills. But um, so I think that's why, that's why community is, should be important to every Christian because it was so important to Jesus. And, and uh, uh, we, we come together again, oh, we'll talk about the Bible. We come ar- together around the word and you will see things that I've never seen. And half of the things that I share and write about are things that I've heard other people talk about in the context of community. I hope you'll come back. Um, please give my dearest, sweetest greetings to Dean Weaver when you see him um, tomorrow <laughs> in Pennsylvania. Um, what an absolute delight. Michael Card, you all can find him at michaelcard.com. We've been talking today about Luke, the Gospel of Amazement. We do have three copies to give away. So all you have to do if you're interested in getting one of those is text the word book to 877-933-2484. Michael, thank you so much. Thanks, Carmen. What a blessing. We'll be right back. All right, wasn't that fun? Surprise and delight here. Uh, Thank you, Paul, for lining up Michael Card for us in this month when we are focusing on the Gospel of Luke. If you would uh, like to enter the drawing for one of the three copies of Luke, The Gospel of Amazement by Michael Card that we have here in the studio, all you have to do is text the word BOOK to 877-933-2484. You're going to get um, uh, a message back that is a link to the website where you can actually fill in the form with all of the information um, about, uh, about yourself that would enable us to get a book into your hands. So again, all you have to do is text... Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.